Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say we're in Newport Beach, California at PIMCO's global headquarters. And alongside me is the CEO, Manny Roman, and the CIO, Dan Iverson. Guys, great to catch up with you both. What a day to be speaking about the global bond market. I actually want to begin, though, in Q4 2018. The equity market's cratering. The credit market arguably is seizing up. And pretty much every single one of the major funds here at PIMCO delivers positive returns. How do we arrive at that moment, Manny? Well, I would say that it's the occasion to shine. Uh, We get tested, and we get tested in difficult markets. And we had a view, thanks to Dan, on value and what the right position was to have before Q4. I wouldn't say we saw that coming, but proper risk management and proper liquidity made us avoid the problem. And we're quite pleased about the result in Q4. Defensive, arguably 12 months ago, Dan going into the final quarter of 2018, coming out of it and deciding to re-risk is a different proposition. De-risking is one thing. Then having the, I guess, enthusiasm, confidence to say now is the time to re-risk, that's a different question. You approach that by saying now is the time to re-risk slightly, buying some of the weakness. Walk me through what you actually did coming into the new year. Well, I think that's right, that uh, you know, in response to an environment in the fourth quarter where we did sense that markets were overshooting fundamentals, uh, we decided as a firm and across these strategies to add risk in li- more liquid areas of the market uh, as more of a tactical view, uh, not trying to be too overconfident and looking to time bottoms in markets, but using the opportunity where others needed liquidity at that point in time uh, to add risk on the margin and look to generate a bit more total return, you know, at least during the first half of the year. So many people talk about the process and how the process is different. It doesn't matter what asset manager I speak to, they say our process is different, that gives us our edge. What is so special about the process here, Dan? We have a large team, uh, and we have a global footprint. Uh, I think that it starts there. Um, so we have access to different areas of the markets that certain firms do not. Uh, and then I think the other key theme, and one of the reasons we're here discussing uh, the secular outlook today, is that we take a longer-term orientation. Uh, we don't try to time markets over different quarters, you know, even over the course of, you know, a one-year period. With that longer-term orientation, you know, we try to protect our clients from areas of the market where froth develops and where the ingredients are there for more extreme underperformance. What do you think that froth is right now? Uh, There's froth, you know, across different areas of the market, but by far the area of most concern for us here at PIMCO is in the credit markets and specifically relating to corporate credit risk. That's an area where, you know, we've had about a decade now of very low yields, in an area where uh, we're getting you know, a lot more concerned about fundamentals. And it's called spade a spade. I mean, it's been a great time for weak issuers to issue paper in Europe and in the U.S. with very weak covenant, and it's been good for them, and I think we've shy away from owning this position. And when things get worse, we think we'll have many opportunities to buy them cheap. You think things aren't going to get worse? For sure. On the, on the, weak, on the weak high-yield credit with weak covenant in business which are cyclical, Of course. What was interesting about spending the day with you guys is actually how bearish you sound around corporate credit. Well, we're bond managers. We're always bearish, right? Well, typically that's the story, but but much more so relative to your competition. I speak to bond investors on a daily basis. I have to say I've been struck by just how bearish, Dan, 
the firm seems to be on corporate credit right now. You know, it, it's, a, it's a subtle point. I, I think when we look at the world today, uh, we see some near-term uncertainty that could be resolved, at least to some degree. Uh, a tremendous amount of liquidity, a combination of central banks. So within the credit sector, spreads can certainly go tighter over the short term. But this is the single area of the financial markets that are prone to overshooting to the downside when people's views towards economic growth change. And as Manny said, as primarily fixed income managers, the most important task uh, that we need to focus on is avoiding permanent capital impairment or the type of downside volatility that's likely to take place when people begin to fear credit risk once again. Manny, you mentioned some of the excesses that we've experienced over the last couple of years. Speaking to some members of the team, they think maybe things could get a whole lot more excessive in the coming years. There was a comparison used earlier on between now and the period approaching the mid-2000s. Is that historical parallel that you're thinking about increasingly in the coming years? I think we do. I think, I think we will both say it's very hard to call the turn of the market. But what you want to have is a framework where you think of value and you say, given a scenario, what are you going to do? What are the things you want to buy? And make sure that we do what we say we're going to do. So, you know, why do we take pride in what our funds offer? Because in times of turbulent markets, when equity go down 15%, we need to perform. We are the building block in people's portfolio where they want to count on us to perform in difficult markets. And the last thing they need is us to be overweight in lazy credit where the credit drops 15 points and we haven't done property or work. Within this secular outlook, number five is the one that really stuck out to me, financial market vulnerabilities. The idea that the market no longer absorbs the news, it makes the news. Dan, talk to me a little bit more about that. How concerned are you about this financial market vulnerability that you've highlighted in the report? We're, we're quite concerned. Uh, now, again, you know, this dynamic, uh, it, it may take some time for this dynamic to rear its ugly head, but we're concerned about the markets being able to facilitate risk transfer when investor mindsets change. Uh, and we saw a preview of that in the fourth quarter. So as an active manager, you need to be prepared for market overshooting. And ideally, if you're prepared, you could profit from that. The key word there, Manny, active. Um, I, I imagine the argument for active is a whole lot stronger over the last 12 months than it once was. Well, active for fixed income. So I think, I think we have a very different view than most. We think active fixed income management delivers the good. And it's as simple as this. And there are reasons why this is the case. There are structural reasons in terms of how the indices are computed. There are behavioral reasons why some agents in a market have non-economic reason to buy papers. Think of the central bank. Think sometimes of insurance companies who have solvency issues. And so we think we can deliver consistently excess return of a benchmark in a much easier way than equity managers can. And so when I hear about active versus passive, I say, don't talk to us. We've delivered a good on a one, three, five, and 10-year basis. But there are reasons, and our job is somehow easier than equity managers. And I think we, we acknowledge this. But there's a lot of tools we can do. Imagine a company. A company always has 200 bonds outstanding. Some trade in dollars, some trade in euros. You can swap them back. There's so many things we can do. We can use derivative. There's so many things we can do to enhance value and deliver better alpha. It sounds to me like you think you can avoid the race to the bottom in fees. 
you won't be part of that. We won't be part of this. You need to segment your offering. You need to say, this is our value proposition. We're never going to be the cheapest. We're trying to add value day after day. We want to be there when things are difficult. Yeah. And we want to be to, you know, we need to invest into our business and have other things to offer which go beyond simple performance. Well, Dan, do you think that's unique to PIMCO or just unique to fixed income bond investors, to, to Manny's point? Quite clear that there's a big difference between the equity investor and the fixed income investor. Is it specific to PIMCO or specific to fixed income investing? Well, I, th- I think the, the advantages that we have uh, relate to the fact that we're operating in the fixed income asset class, where you have yeah. non-economic players that work you know, literally every day uh, that trading markets are open. Uh, I would uh, and do believe that PIMCO has some advantages at this stage of the cycle. We've had about a decade of convergence in terms of beta compensation. Uh, going forward, uh, we think it's going to be a much more challenging environment, an environment with lower base case returns but much higher volatility. And in that type of environment, PIMCO should excel given the depth and breadth of our resources across markets. And size matters. I mean, the reality is we have a lot of people who helped them deliver the performance from you know, 75 credit analysts to 100 quant. And those people matter in terms of long-term sustainable returns. So what, what often people don't see is the need for investment inside the kitchen. Yeah. And the need for investment is growing one way. If you needed 20 people 20 years ago, you need 200 today. Let's talk about that further. I hear so many people say, I need a bigger team. We need to invest in technology more. Big data is the future. Help me understand what you guys are actually doing right now. How that you create alpha, develop that story by investing in tech, investing in people. Actually, give me some real examples, Dan. How does it work? There are, you know, one area is technology. Technology and analytics. Uh, acquiring larger data sets. Uh, utilizing those data sets. You know, understanding key drivers of return. Uh, we even use this big data for economic forecasting, uh, combing through uh, a lot of offerings as well. So that's one area, you know, the highly technical aspects of data collection. Another area that we've been spending a lot of time, and Mandy's been quite helpful in this arena, is in behavioral finance. Uh, working with this research to make better personal decisions uh, when we look at the construct portfolio. And, and look at yourself in the mirror. I mean, I mean the, 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 the biggest problem of fund management is overconfidence. And so we signed this partnership with the University of Chicago. Why? Because we wanted to have a way to rationally see how we make decisions, what we do well, what we do less well, how we optimize risk in our portfolio, and be able to back that with data. Can you give us a real-life example of how this has helped in the the last 12 months, say, Dan? Sure. Uh, We literally uh, have teams that look at senior portfolio managers, how we make decisions across markets relative to what's optimal. Uh, so, for example, uh, do we tend to hold on to losers a little bit longer than we should? Uh, do we run with trades that are working out on behalf of investors long enough? Uh, we get that information. It sometimes puts us in a little bit of an uncomfortable area because it reminds you of how the brain is playing <laughs> tricks yeah, on you. Yeah. But at the end of the day, uh, it leads to better structure where we can understand our own tendencies and biases even within the PIMCO group, ideally learn from it, and then make better decisions going forward. Uh, and this is a type of research stream that we intend to continue uh, for many years to come. You've acted on these conclusions, Manny? Yes, we do. We do. And I think, I think it's a constant evolution, right? There's plenty of things we learn. You know, we, 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 just, we just welcome uh, Richard Thaler as a consultant, yep. you know, to think about retirement, but also to think of how we make decisions. You know, Dan does something great. In the IC, he's always the last one to talk. 
So everyone has a chance to opine. And the most senior guy is not the one who lectures everybody for 10 minutes before everyone has a chance to talk. Because guess what? You know, people usually don't disagree with the boss once he's t- talked for 10 minutes. And so, and so you need to have a process, and you, you need to think about the process. So everyone has a voice from other portfolio managers to quant to behavioral finance and be able to kind of combine all of this together to you know, make the best possible portfolio. You've opened a new office um, outside of the comfort of the West Coast. How's that going and how does that attract the, the kind of talent that ultimately you want to attract here at PIMCO? So we thought, I, I mean, I think Dan and I and our executive committee thought that we needed an office to be able to hire talent in technology. And I think it's fair to say then when it comes to hire tech people, we compete against other financial companies, but we also compete against big tech company and also startup. And we looked at six different locations and concluded that Austin, given the university, was the best place for us over the next 20 years to hire a significant amount of talent and technology. And then we're going to move you know, some small part of the businesses, which makes sense to be in Texas. And so that was quite attractive, and we did a quite in-depth study, and, 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 and you know, so far we have about 100 people down there. You've um, been expanding. Uh, you've expanded into municipals as well. What's left? Any gaps here at PIMCO that you're looking to fill? Any holes that you'd like to fill over the next coming years? I think the main thing is not so much what you need to fill, is whether you know something about it and how you're going to grow it. And I think we are of the view that we want to grow organically and that from time to time there may be small things we can do and bring to the PIMCO organization, but by large it's hiring people and it's make sure that we understand what we're good at and what we're not good at. And, 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 and there's a lot of introspection which comes into this and making sure that we do that well. And a lot of what we're trying to do is anticipate the next investment opportunity for our clients. So, you know, we talked about credit, credit issuance, the development yeah. of markets. Uh, a lot of that's occurred outside the United States, within emerging markets, uh, across Asia, you know, even in pockets of Europe. So a lot of our growth areas are focused on where we anticipate there to be the best return. Uh, in this business, you have to start sometimes multiple years before that opportunity actually is out there and ready to be realized upon. So that's one of the key areas of our focus, resources with a slight tilt towards credit outside the United States. Well, let's talk about private credit markets. Is that an opportunity, Manny, that you'd like to it expand is, in? Well, it is an opportunity, and it's something that we've been doing for, let me get that right, 11 years. Yeah. And it's an opportunity, and it's going to become even more attractive when the business cycle turns. How scalable is it? Well, it's never going to be as scalable as what PIMCO does on the liquid side. And you know what? It doesn't matter. But what we do think is that there are opportunity because of what banks used to do that they don't do anymore for us to do various things. And it goes from lending against real estate to buying securities in housing to being able to opportunistically do direct lending to do various private credit transactions, which if managed properly and constructed the right way, should deliver 10 to 12% of the business cycle net of fee. And, 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 and that's the opportunity for us and yeah. for other people. They're big returns, and the key question is other people. I mean, it's an incredibly competitive environment right now, and we've talked about areas where there might be froth. Is that an area, down where there might be a bit of froth? Well, again, you know, consistent with our views on corporate credit on the public side, that's where we see the froth. 
uh, in terms of direct corporate credit issuance outside the financial space. When we look at areas like commercial real estate, residential real estate, private or public, we continue to see considerable opportunity. That's a sector that, despite the global financial crisis being, what, 11 years past, where we still see frictions in markets, where we still see opportunities for investors on the private side as well as the public side. And that's really been our focus for now, uh, looking to harvest opportunities within that space. How important is that illiquidity premium, so to speak, that you can get out of private credit markets, Manny? Well, it's, it's twofold. I think, I think we, we've just written a paper on this. It's probably a couple of percent, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm so oversimplifying what the paper is about. But people get compensated for holding illiquid securities, and, and, and they are people who can very easily hold this kind of paper. Think of pension plan, for example, who don't need the liquidity. Think of insurance company. And so they are people who can own this, and clearly it's one of the most interesting risk premium. But more importantly, it's also a way to structure a transaction where you think you have an edge and where you understand an industry better than most. And we're going to find part of what we're currently doing very, very attractive and some yeah. other things not so attractive. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we're quite cognizant of that. Uh, well, recognizing the illiquidity is one thing. The liquidity illusion in public markets, Dan, is something you've talked about in the past, and I'd like to talk to you about it now. Do you think enough people are focused on that? You've talked about financial market vulnerabilities, the potential for more gappy markets. It's a market that's got bigger. Participation arguably has increased over the last several years. And yet, fundamentally, just in terms of the structure, it's a market that's got weaker. Just make sense of that for people. Well, people talk about it. Uh, People are aware of the risks. Then you'll have a volatility event like the fourth quarter last year. And when you look at returns, it appears that people are more exposed to this Uh, these less liquid areas of the market than would be suggested from the rhetoric. Uh, But we haven't been tested yet. Uh, Volatilities have been relatively low the last several years. Uh, You just have to take a look and feel the markets from a day-to-day trading perspective to know that when views shift, there's going to be overshooting. Uh, And we don't necessarily mean that this is going to lead to another financial crisis per se. Uh, We do think it's going to lead to disappointment. Uh, in, in the form of overshooting fundamentals. You're constantly in and out of the market. What's changed in the last five years? What is it that has changed that you can identify just in terms of being in and out of the market? What's different? It's really been the last decade. Um, there's less willingness for market participants to step in and provide a buffer when investor views change. Uh, more often than not, in the type of markets we operate in today, it's about lining up a buyer and seller on the other side. If that buyer doesn't happen to be there, Uh, or seller doesn't happen to be there, you end up with this overshooting dynamic. So liquidity management from the standpoint of an active asset manager needs to be top of mind today. Uh, And I think that that's going to be likely one of the rude awakenings that uh, we referred to uh, in our our more recent secular outlook. And I think generational experience also matters, and that's one of the things that we explored in terms of behavioral finance. The fact that, that when you've seen different business cycle, you sort of recognize pattern. You know, this looks like 1991 and this looks like 1998. And I think what has changed is you have a whole generation of people who basically saw the greatest bull market since 2009 and assets keep on going up really steadily for a very, very long time. When you have the committee's meetings, do you see the difference in terms of the investor biases within PIMCO based on the age, based on the demographics? Is that something you see quite clearly? 
Dan? We notice differences of view. Now, whether that's bias or perspective is always tough to disentangle. Well, which one is it? Up, up front. I think it's a little bit of both from time to time. Uh, it is a, a worry that it's been a long, long time since people have gone through a period of heightened volatility or have gone through a credit cycle. Uh, and that's why sometimes, you know, as an active asset manager, it's best to sit back, be patient, and read economic history books as opposed to be on your terminal trading every day. Well, I mean, I give you one bias. On the Bloomberg. Come on, Manny. One bias. I give you one bias. One bias is, you know, we do like company who eventually makes money. Yeah. Now, it's okay to lose money for a while. It's even okay to lose money for a long time if you're acquiring a lot of customers. But at the end of the day, we're sort of hoping that there'll be an E at some point in time and people do make money. So you guys... And I think that's, 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 there's a generation of people who clearly think it doesn't matter. Essentially, you guys then, therefore, looking to be what you call liquidity providers and not liquidity demanders. There's a period of time that you're waiting for that's building, a moment where you want to keep this dry powder for, and I've sensed it all day, speaking to you guys. I mean, this could be several years away. Are you willing to sit out the period of excess that could develop over a period of, say, a couple of years, Dan, are you willing to underperform what, say, some of your peers could be delivering in terms of gains by being defensive? The answer is yes. Uh, the good news is there's been enough localized volatility, dislocation over the last couple of years where you can be defensive, you can be patient, you can be relatively liquid and still right. generate incremental return. If you get to a point like we were in back in 2005 or 2006, where there's a direct trade-off between short-term performance uh, and being defensive, we absolutely are willing to do that. It's absolutely essential as an active manager and perfectly consistent with generating strong returns. It's not just something you're willing to do. It's something you're anticipating happening, isn't it? it that, that's correct. And I think that, you know, maybe using a boxer's analogy, that this is a counterpunching type market. Um, sit back, be patient and wait for others in the market to ask for liquidity and then provide it, assuming you're getting sufficiently compensated. So it's subtle, but it means be defensive, be patient, be more liquid, look for lots of little trades along the way that hopefully could generate some incremental return, and then strike when you have these bouts of volatility. We haven't had that much of that the last decade, but going forward the next five to 10 years, we think it's a type of environment where that style of active management is gonna win out in the end. No, I very much agree, and I think I think that we we sort of hoping for a more difficult environment, and 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 once again, whether it happens in six months or in in two years, it's very hard to call. But um, but I think we're gearing the firm for more tumultuous market, and 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 making sure we have the resource and we have a game plan. And I think having a game plan and sort of thinking about various options and various opportunities is 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 what we get paid to do. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.